listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Good morning, everyone. We're continuing our series on Revelation, which, as we've been discovering, is about the apocalypse, which is not as scary as it sounds. It is simply an unveiling. It is an unveiling and a lifting of the screen to show us the unseen world. And as we see, we see it throughout the whole narrative of Scripture that we have an unveiling of a a battle between light and darkness, from the beginning to the end of our story is this great battle. And as Watchman Nee says, the chief dispute in the universe is a dispute between who has authority and who deserves to be worshipped. We've been looking at the letters to the churches, the church being the embassy of the kingdom of God, the people whom God has called out of the world to then represent his light to the rest of the nations so that his battle his light can penetrate the darkness. We looked at the letter to the Ephesians and the invitation to come back to their first love. That no matter what they did, even though it was all the right stuff, they'd miss the point because they forgot or they neglected the very most important thing, which is putting God first and having that love relationship with him. And last week, Mark did a brilliant sermon on the letter to Smyrna, the only church in these letters that actually didn't get ridiculed for anything. Jesus just had commendation for them. And the point was, is that pressure had produced them into diamonds, that there's something about our ordinary events, there's something about trial that produces something greater, and it actually speaks against the darkness. Today, we're looking at the letter to Pergamon. Pergamon was one of the seven cities in the same area around Turkey. What was Turkey? Well, is still is Turkey. And Pergamon was actually built on a really high rock. It was a thousand feet high. So they had a vantage point that the other cities didn't have. On top of this rock was this incredible library and people would come from all around the world to engage in the thoughts and ideas that came out of Pergamon. This city had over 200,000 parchments that were spreading key philosophical ideas, talk about religion, the gods, and thought that was to shape the known world at that time. Actually, fun fact, the word parchment came from the same word as Pergamon. So we have here the epicentre of thoughts and ideas. Now, on top of this high hill, there were temples dedicated to the various gods of the known world at that time. And so people would flock to Pergamum for key ideas and thoughts, but also would flock to Pergamum for the worship of these gods. And amongst this group of people rose up a people who had been introduced to a whole new idea. And that was the fact that there is one God, that his name is Jesus Christ, that he is the light of the world. And they had decided to move themselves from the world and center around a worship of him. And this is what Jesus himself, not John, not Paul, not any other biblical author, Jesus himself says the following to the church at Pergamum. Revelations 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Back the track. 
Jesus is not mincing words here. He never has. But what he's doing is showing us to the extent that he's on a war footing, that he is in a battle and the church is also in a battle. Jesus is wielding a sword. He has come to fight, but he's come to fight the very center and the city where Jesus, Jesus, Satan has his very throne. This is a big call. And Revelation here is revealing the extent of the battle, that this isn't just a little bit of grey here. No, this is black and white. There is a dominion and territory in which Satan is having his throne and this light is wanting to come in to this place. But why Pergamon? Why not Ephesus? Why not Smyrna? Why was Pergamon the home of Satan himself? We don't entirely know. There's a lot we don't understand in Revelation. But what we do know in Pergamon is that, as I said before, built up on a high place and the high places where the places of worship still are, the highest places we hold on earth are places of worship. And on this high hill, a thousand feet into the air, were these temples to various gods. In Pergamon particularly, you had the temple to Zeus. Zeus was the king of the gods in whom it was thought all the other gods came out of. He was the chief of all of them, the god of gods. And so if you lived in Pergamum and you wanted to worship the highest being, you would come and you would worship at the temple of Zeus. If you needed time for pleasure, some good wine, some revelry, some sexual orgies or whatever you felt like, you could go to the temple of Dionysus. If you needed harvest and a blessing on your produce, food on your table, you could go and worship in the temple of Demeter. If you needed healing, you could go to the temple of Asclepios. This was a weird one. You would get healed by snakes. You'd be put to sleep. Snakes would creep over your skin. And in that process, it was believed that they would bring healing to whatever ailment was affecting you. If you needed wisdom, for war, for business, for life, for politics, you could go to Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and worship at her temple, or you could go to the temple of Caesar himself. The temple of Trajan was in Pergamon. So what you have here is that from politics to medicine to religion, Satan himself occupied the hearts and minds of this area of human society and civilization. And it's in this context that Jesus in verse 13 says to them, you have remained true to my name. Other passages say you have held on, that against pressure, against things that are seducing you are in your face, you've actually held on to the truth and he thanks them for them and he commends them for it and them holding on was at great cost. As that passage tells us, Antipas was martyred. Nero came through and Antipas was delivering people of demons. He was taking the darkness and bringing in the light. And so Nero persecuted him and he died. But the church did not waver against such persecution. They remained true to his name. Unlike Smyrna, though, the church in Pergamon gets a warning from Jesus, the truth teller. And Jesus says this to them. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The church in Pergamon had won the battle on the outside, but the darkness had crept in unknowingly on the inside of the church. And that what was happening in this group of believers, that there were some among them holding to false teachings, quite possibly unknowingly. Balaam was a symbol of evil. You can read his story in Numbers, it's a staggering book. I'm reading it at the moment and it's just crazy what happens to us humans and how easily we get led astray. But Balaam basically led the nation of Israel into mingling and compromise and tolerance and they ended up taking the life of the nations. Nicolaitans or the Nicolaitans um, came from a, a disciple called Nicholas and essentially he, he did the same thing. He had various teachings that told people that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was okay to engage in sexual immorality. And basically what both of them were doing, whether you were Balaam or whether you were Nicholas, is that you were getting people to both fall into a sense of tolerance and fall into a sense of compromise. Balaam and Nicholas actually mean the same thing when you break down their names. One's a Hebrew name, one is a Greek name, and both names means Lord over the people. And their subtle but overt teachings meant that the people in Pergamum were saying things like this. If it doesn't hurt anyone, it's okay. Others are doing it, so it doesn't really matter. The Nicolaitans particularly held to the belief that because of grace, it covers everything. We don't have to obey God anymore. Grace wins. And when it comes to idols, idols are just wooden stone. There's no life to them. It doesn't matter. And what they had failed to realise is that there is a spiritual reality that lies behind all of these things, behind the belief, behind the ideology, behind the lifestyle and behind the worship. Daryl Johnson in his commentary on Revelation says this, Yes, the idol is nothing, but behind the idol, associated with the idol, lurks the presence and authority of unseen spiritual forces that Paul calls demons. These are not neutral acts. On the surface it appears to be so, but reality is never exhausted by surface appearances. Idol worship opens the worshipper up to the unseen realm. Idols, of course, are not made of wood and stone. They are made of cultural values, political agendas, lifestyles, corporate ethos, even religious movements. What Daryl Johnson is saying here is that he's reminding us we live in a spiritual reality and our engagement with stuff, things, lifestyles, opens up doorways in the spiritual realm. And that whichever door we open depends on whether we let light or darkness in. And for the church in Pergamum, instead of bringing light to the world, the world had come in to the church. As I was considering this, I was reminded of a book by philosopher Martin Buber that he wrote in the 1950s called The Eclipse of God. 
When you think about an eclipse, an eclipse is when the moon moves between Earth and blocks the sun from the view of Earth. It can feel like the sun has gone, but it hasn't. The sun is still completely doing what it always had done, shining in its full brilliance. The eclipse has no effect on the sun whatsoever, but from our view on Earth, it feels like it has radically changed. This is what can happen when we let the darkness take hold and put a veiling over the sun. Another word for eclipse, funnily enough, is a veiling, a putting of a veil over the light and over the brightness. And his book goes into detail about how our culture and civilization has actually eclipsed God from our view and our experience. In his book, Reframation, Alan Hirsch, it's an excellent book, I recommend it, says this. The eclipse is therefore a powerful 21st century metaphor because it explains so much about the struggle we face to know God. We are trapped finding ourselves enclosed within view of the world that locks out the possibility of transcendence. Our awareness of God is therefore obscured and eclipsed and we find ourselves cut off. That we have grown up in an era and a time in history where the material has been magnified, where we have lived lives shaped by what we can see, taste, touch and experience and the spiritual has been completely dismissed. As Christians, we know it's real, but it just feels like a knowledge. It doesn't feel like it's something that shapes our behaviour or our perspective. Hirsch goes on to say, God has been eclipsed, not because he has moved from our sight, but rather because objects, ideas and idols insert themselves into our viewpoint, obscuring our capacity to view God in all his fullness. Pope Benedict XVI would comment on this and he would say that the light is dimming from the horizon of the earth and the more the light dims, the more humanity is losing its bearings to great destructive effect. I feel like this is a powerful metaphor for where we are today. I feel like with the craziness of what we're experiencing, I'm not just speaking about COVID, I'm I'm speaking about the swathe of destruction that is around us at the moment, that it is as if the rulers and the powers and the principalities have been let, let loose on the earth. But there's something that God is wanting to do in this place because the sun is still shining brightly. The sun has not left the sky. William Yeats wrote a poem uh, after World War I. It's quite beautiful. I want to share it with you. He says this, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, just fog and confusion. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world and the blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Let's say that again. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. He was living at this time, the end of World War I, in a world that was highly educated, relatively prosperous, that was raging with hate and violence. And the things that the world had put its confidence in had collapsed. The centre 
cannot hold. He goes on to say in another stanza in the same poem, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Don't know if you're into poetry. I'm getting into it myself in my older age. But what Yeats is speaking about here is he's saying that there's a demise of 2,000 years of Christian history and in its replacement is the birth of a new violent civilization. In his poem, he's basically saying, instead of a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory, we have a beast of the apocalypse, a roughed beast. Its hour has come round at last and it slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. That the cradle of Christianity of the light has been lulled to sleep and in its place the birth of other thought has taken over and the darkness has eclipsed the sun. This is the war. This is the battle between the light and darkness. And with the death of a God, which is the worldview in which we have grown up and born, we have a belief system that says that God is dead, so trust in humanity. The only thing that matters is what makes mankind advance, progress and control. Live for now. Live by your own flesh. But we're in the church and so we don't believe God is dead. Our mantra is God is alive. But our lives unwittingly and unknowingly still say but trust in humanity. Your control, your will, your ability to change things but what we are experiencing right now on the earth at the centre, cannot hold. Within a couple of months, the things in which we have prized our civilization on, from globalisation to capitalism to the economy, not to mention our health, is collapsing. The Olympics are meant to be on. The Olympics aren't on. The AFL still thinks it can do something, but not really. The things, the idols, they're shaking. But what is so interesting, and I would say is exciting at this point, as it feels like the darkness is raging, is that whilst idols can be shaken, as Hebrews tells us, the kingdom of God is unshakable. That what is true about the sun and the warmth in which it emits and the life that it gives cannot be changed because what is happening on the earth right now? We are living in a transition of eras. I was in a meeting recently with hundreds of other people. It was just a massive big Zoom meeting with John Tyson, our own Aussie brother, who has planted 13 churches in New York. And he was sharing about the reality of what is hitting New York at the moment. And as he was sharing, he gave a bunch of facts to what I already knew to be true. But there was a statement he made and it just felt like a javelin straight from heaven into my spirit. And I'm like, whoa. And he said, New York is on life support. It will never recover and it will never be what it used to be. This is New York. This is a city that never sleeps. This is a place we all want to go to and visit. This is a place that is the fulcrum of our ideas and and what it means to live a good life. And within a couple of months, the centre doesn't hold. It's collapsed. 
And in its place, God is wanting to transition things. And so you and I are actually living in an incredibly exciting time and we are experiencing the transition of eras from one era into the next and we're currently in the middle of the bridge to what that is. And he's allowing things to move out so he can move in and take their place. The sun is still shining. He's going after his church to reflect his son back to the world, but to do so, he has to get the world out of the church. Jesus goes on in his letter to Revelation, to the Pergamon church in Revelation. And he says what he keeps saying to all his churches and what he keeps saying to us throughout his scriptures, repent, Therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of them a hidden, I will give some of them a hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We have here as we have throughout Revelation, a war footing. We have here an urgency and a call to repent, a turning around. And then we have here a provision, a hidden manner, notice the word hidden, and a new name, a new identity. And just as we go to sleep when it's dark and we wake up when it's the dawn and the light shines to live out the day, I want to end with three practicals for you to take this invitation and to live it out as of today and then into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. The first one is to awaken to the dawn. We are in this moment of transition at the dawn of a new era. We can just begin to see the rays of the sun coming back on the earth. Therefore, at this time, it is time to actively deal with stuff that has been able to hide in the darkness. It's time to deal with the things that you could hide or ignore because life and busyness could take over. Jesus is going after those things because he cares about them, because he wants you to open doors to the light, not doors to the darkness, and he wants you to enter into the fullness of this new era. This is a time to seek God. This is a time to get back into the places that we had previously abandoned him in. This is a time to break old patterns. And this is not a striving. This is a heart orientation. Awaken to the dawn. When you wake up, I don't know about you, but I have a shower. And so the second point is, after we awaken to the dawn, wash away the darkness. This is one definition of repentance. It's getting rid of the dark and the dirt so that we can be clean again. I don't know what happens to your body if you don't have a shower every day. Maybe you can go without for two if you're lucky. Personally, I can't handle it. But any more than that, you start to stink. And so what we need to do is we need to wash away the darkness. I looked up the antonym to the word eclipse. Guess what it is? Renewal. This is the metaphor that keeps on giving. That instead of having the shadow and the veil come over us, it's time for renewal. And we get renewal when we repent. We repent when we wash off the old ways and we enter into a new space and a new identity. That the unveiling God has got for us involves repentance. It is a change of mind and it is letting the light 
overwhelm the darkness. This is a conscious and daily decision. Where there has been darkness over your heart, he doesn't want you to repent because he wants to discipline. That's not who he is. That's not his heart. He wants you to come to him and return to him so he can exchange the lifelessness for life, so he can exchange the lies for truth, so he can exchange the shame for glory, which has been his agenda from the beginning. And once I get out of the shower, I do not like to be naked. Some people do. I don't like it. We need to put on new clothes. And so my third point here is to put on the new clothes. When you're putting on new clothes, you do start off naked. It's it's true. And usually we don't like to be in public when that's the case. This is a hidden time. This is a hidden space. That although against me wanting to speak about renewal when we're in a time of eclipse, and we have a veil literally over our faces at the moment, so you can't even see me as I leave from here. I have to put this back on. You can't see my expression. You can't see my face. This is a metaphor for a time of hiddenness that Jesus insists we go into at this time. He's not going to let us get out of it because he wants to give us a provision in the hidden places where we have sought provision in the world. Do not underestimate when you are overcome with sexual temptation or lust what your decision to choose him instead does in the atmosphere. When you're caught up in ridicule with your work colleagues for having a belief system that believes in Jesus, who could allow suffering at this time? Don't underestimate when you stand for the truth what that actually does in the hidden places. When you choose not to engage in gospel and use your tongue to speak against others, do not underestimate what that does in the unseen realm. But for us to get to a place of strength and confidence and courage and identity, it's time to be hidden. But where you feel lack, where the problem feels too big, where the issues feel insurmountable, where you're lacking courage, he has got hidden manna for you. And we know that manna is a day-to-day provision. He gave manna for that moment of that day and then he did it again. In this hiddenness, we seek him each day to provide for ourselves what we can't ourselves but for what the world also can't provide for us. And the new clothes is your new identity. Jesus says to the church in Pergamon, to those who overcome, I will give them a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to that person. The secret place here. There's a secret identity that only Jesus knows you have. And in this time, he wants to give it to you. In Pergamon at the time, people would get invitations written to them on a clean slate of stone and marble to signify that they had a place of importance and they were invited in. The church in Pergamum didn't get invited to these events because they didn't want to engage in the revelry and the worship of other gods. So what Jesus is saying to them, you haven't missed out, don't worry. The world might say you have. The world might say you're alone. The world might say you've missed out, but I have your name, the real one, written on stone. And he knows that he needs his church to walk into its true and full identity. And that means we need the name he has given us. I believe that in this time of hiddenness, of veiling, of the secret places, he's not going to just give us hidden manner. 
He is going to reveal to you your true identity. So come the time we get to unveil and we get to gather again, we have the world out of the church. We have people walking in and standing to the truth of who Jesus has called them to be and we get to be the church to a world that is going to be looking for answers. And so Watchman Nee, who says that the chief dispute in the universe is who is worthy of worship and who holds authority. Revelation tells us Jesus wins. He's going to win and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's just that he wants you in now because he wants you to participate. You're part of it. And so I want to end actually with a passage from Isaiah 60, written at a time of a transition from darkness to light. This is what he says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. 